If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, tonight we want to continue, I guess sort of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a second installment of uh, what we began last week, kind of just a brief series uh, that we're doing here in between uh, two book studies. We uh, finished up uh, Second Kings together. We'll be starting in First uh, Chronicles together here shortly. But we began last time sort of in this series, uh, we talked about looking at sort of the ministry and operation of the Holy Spirit among church gatherings, uh, and particularly uh, how the Spirit functions biblically, how the Holy Spirit uh, manifests Himself in the gifts of the Spirit in assembly times when we come together and worship. And we mentioned how uh, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 through chapter 14, Paul particularly is giving instruction and guidance, really corrective guidance, to some problems that seem to exist in the Corinthian church, uh, some ways in which they were out of order. And so there's these repeated refrains where Paul continues to say, when you come together or as you come together as a church, and he's seeming to give instruction regarding their meeting times, the corporate gatherings, the times when they would publicly assemble, because they had began to get out of order and, and were zealous and open to the ministry of the Spirit, which is very wonderful, uh, but they were functioning in a way where they were sort of out of balance and out of order, and so God wanted to bring some correction and parameters to them in the midst of these things. Uh, again, remember the context is not the private worship life of the believer. Uh, the instructions, particularly here in chapter 14, are, are not addressing predominantly the private worship life as much as how we are to function under the leading of the Spirit in our corporate gathering times. That is, when we come together as a church family for meetings, for times of worship, how we are to properly conduct ourselves in the congregational setting. Now, just for sake of context, because the chapter flows, I want to just reread, if we could, what we looked at last time, verse one down through verse 19. If you weren't here, I certainly encourage you to listen to the message from last week. It will certainly, I think, give a little bit more clarity as we continue to go on in the next, uh, next section of 1 Corinthians 14. But let's just reread through verses 1 through 19 together and just let God's word speak for what it says. Paul began the chapter by saying, pursue love. That is that love might be the uh, motivation behind why we want to be open to the things of the spirit, that it would also regulate how we operate, love above all else. Pursue love, and he says, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, speaking forth a word for God. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself a very edifying uplifting way of us building ourselves up in our spirit is this beautiful ministry of the spirit this beautiful gift where we are able to uh, pray in tongues unto the lord he says it's a way to edify ourselves. but in contrast verse 14 he said he who prophesies edifies the church gives benefit to everyone else gathered in a meeting i wish you all spoke with tongues but even more that you prophesied for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless indeed he interprets, notice that the church may receive edification. In other words, Paul's saying speaking in tongues, a good and wonderful gift, but he says it's much better to exercise in the public gathering the gift of prophecy. So pray, he says, that you might experience that above all else. Verse six, but now, brethren, I come to you speaking with tongues. What shall I profit you, benefit or help you unless... I speak to you either by a revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. The idea is expressing things that just kind of vanish into the air and don't really have any substance or value to others that may be present among you when you do it. There are, he says, verse 10, as it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, 
I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks and he who speaks shall be a foreigner to me. We're, we're disconnected. There's no real substance in our exchange with each other, he's saying. Even so, paralleling that as an illustration, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the, again, edification, the building up, the strengthening of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding, my logical mind, my ability to grasp in my thinking pragmatically says that it's unfruitful. I'm not getting anything out of it. I don't even understand what I'm saying and praying in the midst of exercising that spiritual gift, Paul says. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? Verse 15, I will pray with the spirit at times, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. So Paul says, at times I choose, I determine to regulate what I'll exercise, whether I pray with my logical thinking mind, with the understanding in the language that I know, or whether I pray in the spirit, exercising that gift spiritually of praying in the gift of tongues as I'm miraculously enabled by the Spirit to do that, Paul's saying. Same with the expression of praise through song and so forth. Otherwise, he says, verse 16, if you bless with the Spirit, how will you occupy the place of the uninformed, say, amen, or yeah, I agree with that, so be it, at your giving of thanks since he doesn't understand what you're saying. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified, built up, or benefited. I thank my God, Paul says, that I speak with tongues more than you all. We left off the end of verse 19. Yet notice again, in the church, that is in the congregational setting, when I come together with you, other believers, Paul says, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul says, look, I'm not diminishing the beauty of this wonderful gift from the Lord intended for the self-edifying experience of a believer's soul and spirit. But Paul says, yet in the church, yet when I come together with you, Paul says, I exercise this gift. But when I come together with you in the church, in the main gathering, in the public assembling of ourselves for a worship meeting, Paul says, I would rather have the opportunity to speak five clear, understandable words that I could teach others and impart something helpful, instructive, to benefit you spiritually than to be able, he says, to speak 10,000 words praying in tongues in front of you where really you get nothing out of it whatsoever. So again, we talked about last time, the, the goal really of assembly times for worship really is twofold. If you take the Bible as a whole, the New Testament, it's really twofold. One, it is to glorify and honor Jesus. Jesus said in John's gospel that the Holy Spirit would glorify me. So when the Spirit is at work, when we're worshiping in spirit and truth, we should want to honor and glorify Jesus. How do we know if the Spirit's at work in a meeting? Well, the Lord should be the one who's honored and lifted up, not a human being, not a personality. Not, it should be the Lord. The focus is on the Lord. We want the focus to be on the Lord. And secondarily, the goal of assembly times is also to strengthen and build each other up spiritually, that we'd all be vessels of honor, fit and ready for the master's use, that the Holy Spirit may flow through us as the body of Christ interconnected, exercising different gifts and diversities and being able to strengthen one another spiritually, that we come not just to receive, but to also be one useful and, and to impart ways of benefiting and strengthening each other spiritually. So again, we want to do all things in a way that gives honor to the Lord and that imparts help to other people. We want to function in a matter where we don't do things that draw attention to ourselves, nor to disrupt or distract from what the Holy Spirit is doing or wanting to do, and we don't want to take attention away from that. So Paul then continues, verse 20, in this chapter saying, brethren... Do not be children, he says, in understanding. However, in malice, that is that which is harmful, be babes or be immature in that, innocent in how to harm people. But in understanding, he says, be mature. So notice verse 20, Paul gives an exhortation here towards maturity 
as it pertains to the operation and exercising of spiritual gifts in the church assembly. See the text there, verse 20 says, do not be children, childish the idea is, do not be childish in understanding, but in understanding he says, rather be mature. Now that tells us something, that God wants us very clearly to properly understand how spiritual gifts operate. In fact, Paul says back a few chapters back in 1 Corinthians 12 regarding the gifts of the Spirit, he says not to be ignorant regarding these things, particularly the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Only a few times in the New Testament where the Bible actually tells us not to be ignorant regarding spiritual gifts, regarding God's plan for the nation of Israel, And then in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us not to be ignorant regarding the rapture of the church or what happens to those who die and go on to be with the Lord and how the rapture will connect to those kind of things. And isn't it interesting that those three things, the New Testament says, don't be ignorant regarding how the ministry of the Spirit works and the gifts in the church. Don't be ignorant regarding God's plan for the nation of Israel. And don't be ignorant and uninformed regarding the return of the Lord. And a lot of times, it seems like that's where the church is very naive and biblically ignorant. And we all fight amongst one another. Instead of being sound in regards to, well, what does the word of God say about those things? So again, Paul's saying here, look, don't be childish in your understanding. God wants you and I to understand and be mature in how we operate in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit among the church body. He says not to be childish or immature to our openness to the Spirit's ministry or how the Spirit is properly to operate in his work among us. Now think about that for a moment, if you would. I've uh, raised three children. Many of you have raised children. If I think about my children when they were small or any children when they're small, children, particularly when they're young and childish, they prefer amusing and entertaining things over useful things, right? When it comes to a gift, you know, if you... Christmas time or birthday, if you give a child a toy that's really fun and exciting, well, wow, they, you know, they, they prefer that and they enjoy it. If you give them socks and underwear, oh, oh, right? One's useful, the other's amusing and entertaining. Children, in their childish nature, prefer what's amusing and what's entertaining over what's actually useful to them. Well, think of that from a spiritual perspective. Paul's saying, look, don't be childish in regards to the work and ministry of the Spirit. How is one way we can do that? One of the ways that we can be immature and childish in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit is we are more interested in what's amusing and entertaining and seems entertaining and spiritually dynamic, like we you know, want a, a show or some, and we want what's amusing and entertaining, and that's what we're inclined towards. God says that's spiritual immaturity. What we should be inclined towards is what is of use to me spiritually, what builds me up, not what excites me and entertains me in the church, what strengthens and edifies and builds up my soul within the church. How can I be benefited and strengthened spiritually? Because look, you can entertain me for a church service, but I'm not going to make it through Monday morning at 9 a.m. I need to be edified in a church service. I need to be instructed and encouraged and built up so that I can survive from Sunday uh, afternoon to Wednesday night or the next opportunity I get to be with the Lord's people out in that crazy world. So again, one of the ways we don't want to be childish is in that manner. And another thing, if you think of children, is children are childish in the sense that as well, young children typically prefer doing what makes them happy and they lack consideration of other people. Is that not another mark of being childish in young children? They want to do what they want to do. They don't care how it affects Johnny, how it affects mom and dad, how it affects everybody, right? They just want to do what they want to do. And children in their childish nature lack consideration for if I behave that way or if I do this, how's that going to affect everybody else around me? Children don't always pay attention to that. So again, he's making a mark of what's spiritual immaturity? What is immaturity and childishness in the, in the operations of the things of the Spirit? It, it's having kind of that cavalier attitude, well, I want to do this in the meeting, and I don't really care what other people think about it. I don't really care if it stumbles the person three rows over or if the entire congregation is distracted and going, what in the world is that guy doing? 
Why in the world is she behaving like that, right? Because a childish nature doesn't consider in love the impact or effect upon others. So Paul is saying here, look, be, be innocent as it pertains to harming others and hindering others, malice. But he says, when it comes to understanding spiritual matters, Paul says, grow up. Don't be childish. Be mature in these things. Understand them. Now, verses 21 through 25, if you read ahead, are, I'm going to say, indeed kind of complex and challenging to kind of get a real grasp and clarity on. And that has led to many different interpretations. If you read commentaries, you can see it for yourself. Uh, I will do my best to try and shed some light from my uh, understanding and, and study and preparation. But let me just say this. When you find a section in Scripture that seems complex, or if it ever appears, maybe there, is that, like, almost sounds contradictory there, and you can't quite grasp it with your finite mind, I have found and learned from others that a good uh, you know, sort of principle, the Bible interpretation in a complex section that maybe lacks some clarity because we're just not grasping what's being conveyed in our little finite mind is typically that's when it becomes best to focus on what is very clear and to just glean what you can from that and move on <laughs> and just trust God's sovereignty. And don't get bogged down trying to strengthen. There's got to be a contradiction there. Look, I, 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 I trust God. I trust that God doesn't contradict himself. I trust the sovereignty of God. And if there's any lack or problem on the understanding, it's on my end. It's not on God's end. So that being said, let's look at these verses together here. But again, if, if you see some complexity, don't let that overwhelm you and lose the, uh, what's that statement? Lose the forest among the trees or, you know, that, that kind of statement that exists like that. We don't want to do that. Remember the context, again, is about not being childish and immature spiritually. That's the context right at this point. Order within the meetings of the church, not being childish and immature spiritually. Paul says, verse 21, in the law, it is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who are unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, take notice here. Again, in verse 21, Paul is quoting there from Isaiah the prophet. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 and 12. Yet notice in verse 21, Paul doesn't say in the prophet. He says in the law it is written. Well, wait a minute. Isaiah is a prophet. What do you mean in the law? And then he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. Well, what we need to remember, the principle that Isaiah the prophet in chapter 28 of his book was quoting and referencing, that original principle was found in the law. It was found in Deuteronomy 28 verse 49. And that's what Isaiah was alluding to here when he prophesied what Paul quotes in chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28:49 from the law of God says this, the Lord said, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. So in Deuteronomy, God was predicting a time when his people were not right in their spiritual condition. They were functioning outside of God's design and order. As a result, they were off target spiritually, and they were functioning outside of God's will. And as the result of that, they weren't in harmony with God and what they were doing. And God was therefore predicting he was going to allow a foreign nation, a Gentile nation, the Assyrians, and then later the Babylonians to come in and invade his people as a judgment of God. And they would come in among the land, these Gentile people, and conquer the Lord's people as a sign of God's work happening powerfully among them. And their hearing these people speak these other languages was a sign that God's power was at work, God's judgment was at hand, and a change was happening. Now, it was those principles Isaiah was then applying when he quoted in chapter 28 these very words, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet they will not hear me, says the Lord. Because Israel at that time had refused clear evidence 
that God was giving to them through Isaiah the prophet, speaking precept upon precept and line upon line, and they would not listen to clear revelation through God's word, God was going to allow the Assyrians to come in and to invade the land of Israel as a form of his judgment. And when foreigners came into Israel, as Isaiah quoted, at that time, they would hear other languages, languages that they were not familiar with, and it was a means of God trying to speak to get their attention more forcefully. So God, by his power, brought in the invading armies. They heard these other languages. That was a way God was demonstrating his hand and his power in judgment against them using that supernatural occurrence of hearing these languages that didn't belong in their land as a way to kind of awaken them and to let them see a powerful change was taking place in that distinct time historically where they would go into captivity. Now, understand, when Isaiah makes this reference here, he's not speaking to what we understand in the New Testament as the gift of speaking in tongues. Because you notice, he says, verse 21 there, with men of other tongues, God says, I will speak to these people. We know this gift of speaking in tongues is not God speaking to people. So Isaiah wasn't in his prophecy specifically referring to the gift of tongues. Yet, that being said, it was a strong sign to the people of God. Well, what sign was it? Well, number one, it was a sign that the people were not functioning in God's order in the way they were currently conducting themselves. Secondly, it was a sign, listen, that the times of the Gentiles were coming upon the Lord's people. Thirdly, it was a sign that God's Spirit was powerfully at work among them, orchestrating something that was very evident, a judgment of God and the hand of the Lord intervening in a direct way. Well, in a similar way, symbolically, Paul seems to take this and see how it connects to the origin of speaking tongues by the Spirit that took place in Acts chapter 2. He says in verse 22, Therefore, tongues, in a similar manner, he's trying to say, are for a sign. Not for those who believe, but to those who are unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Again, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, what happens? A change in season came about. It was the origin of the church, a brand new time, a brand new uh, period, in history, if you would, spiritually, where God was giving birth to the church, something was taking place, the times of the Gentiles were beginning in that moment, and as the Holy Spirit was poured out at the establishment of the church, the gift of tongues was first manifested, and many who were in not relationship with God were hearing in other languages things declared regarding God. And that was a clear sign to the unbelievers present. Those tongues signified in a similar way the supernatural power of God's spirit was happening in their midst. It signified the times of the Gentiles was now beginning historically after the days of Christ, that a change was happening. It signified that those unbelievers were under judgment for doing what? Having just rejected God's clear revelation through his son Jesus Christ who they had rejected and crucified upon a cross and so therefore they were under the judgment of God even as Israel once was and at the time of Pentecost those times were changing and though the manifestation of tongues initially indicated a sign that God was doing something unique and supernatural. It was so evident something supernatural was happening. God was using that gift in that instance foremost at Pentecost to stir and awaken the spiritual attention of people who were really, if you would, under the judgment of God at that time. Here's what's interesting is those whose spiritual attention was stirred and awakened and were willing to believe what did Peter go on to do in Acts chapter 2? He didn't speak to them in tongues. He prophesied to those who wanted to believe. And he began to speak prophetically to those who wanted to believe, conveying to them, this is what you must do to be in right relationship with God. And to those who believed and wanted to believe, Peter began quoting and applying scripture. The point I believe Paul is making here is very simply that it was prophecy that became the most helpful 
and beneficial to those who believed what God was doing and prophecy and hearing what God was trying to reveal and say in a helpful, direct way is always God's ideal. That's always God's highest intention, clearly communicating to those who want to believe in what is true. Now, in light of that idea, it seems Paul carries then the context into the routine church gathering and saying, look, in the same way, Peter didn't just go on to speak to people in tongues when they needed to hear clarity. He wanted to lead them into the truth. He's going to say, look, in the same way, this should exist when we come together as the church, emphasizing the priority should be on clear speech so people can hear from God very obviously and respond to him. So he says, verse 23, therefore, if the whole church, he says, look at 23, if the whole church comes together in one place, a congregational meeting, and all, everybody in the room starts to speak with tongues. Anybody been in one of those church gatherings before? All of a sudden, everybody erupts and begins praying at the same time simultaneously out loud in tongues and everybody's just, you know, kind of doing that at the same time. He says, if that happens in the church gathering, everybody starts to speak with tongues and there comes in those who are uninformed, that is unaware of spiritual gifts or unbelievers, unconverted, unsaved people. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? The Greek there means crazy, right? Yeah, that's the idea there. He says, look, in a public worship time, if everybody comes together and they all decide to start exercising their gift of praying in tongues, which perhaps was going on in Corinth as they were very open to these things, and maybe they were almost trying to imitate Pentecost, thinking, well, that's what we need. We need to be Pentecost-like. So when we come together, we got to focus on what's charismatic and almost to the point of charismania. So if we really want to be open to the things of the Spirit, we need to try and reflect Pentecost. So let's just all start praying in tongues and just all everybody simultaneously doing this at the same time. He says, if everyone's doing that and an unbeliever, an unsafe person comes in or somebody who's just not familiar with the gifts of the Spirit, what are they going to think? When they're experiencing this, he's going to say, they're going to say, these people are out of their minds. I'm never going back there. This is why I never went to church before. And, and he says, that's going to be very unhealthy because what's, what's happening? He says, people are just getting confused. Nothing of benefit is helping them. They feel uncomfortable. They're distracted. They may even be so stumbled that they leave and never have an opportunity to hear the gospel. They never have an opportunity to hear the truth because they're so alarmed because they don't understand what's taking place. He says, verse 24, but if all prophesy, that is speaking the word of God forth, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and is convicted by all and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Notice the contrast as compared to just somebody saying these people were out of their mind. Complete opposite. The power of the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life in a very beneficial and fruitful way. It's as if everybody instead, when the church comes together, is foremost focused on speaking forth the word of God or speaking maybe something God puts upon their heart. So again, I believe this could be a reference during the gathering of you know, the giving of a teaching. Uh, or the just you know sharing of things that the Lord puts upon our hearts as believers from the Spirit as we speak to one another. He says that's going to be more helpful and productive and beneficial. You notice he mentions in these verses here a number of benefits of hearing the Word of God, not tongues, hearing the Word of God spoken, prophecies and words and messages from God. He says those hearing these things, verse 24, he says they'll be convinced, that is convinced of what's true. That is, people, as they hear the word of God taught or preached, or as they hear the word of God spoken and shared in conversation, or they hear somebody sharing things that God's put on their heart, people speaking forth what God has spoken, he says, it'll cause people to be convinced about what's true about God, convinced about what's right about God's will. He says it will also cause people by the Spirit to be convicted, he says there, verse 24. They'll be convicted of what is 
wrong in their lives. It'll bring conviction of personal error in their life, conviction of sin, conviction of, hey, I've been thinking wrong or my heart's been wrong. The Holy Spirit will be able to convict through the word of God. He says also they'll be confronted about the private issues going on in their hearts as God exposes. He says, as they hear the word of God, verse 25, the secrets of their heart are revealed. You know, it's a wonderful thing, is it not, when God's word goes forth, whether it's in a teaching or maybe as believers are just talking amongst themselves and the Lord just moves on somebody's heart to say something that the Spirit's leading them to say and how sometimes, you know, maybe you've been on the receiving end of that or on the giving end of that and all of a sudden somebody's heart is just exposed and things that no one else knew about their life, God just exposes them. Right? I mean, I've experienced that over the years in pastoral ministry where somebody will, you know, say something or give a call or an email and say, did my wife tell you what, what we were, you know, fighting about last week? How did you know, you know, are somebody running surveillance on me? And I say, yes. God is. The Holy Spirit's running surveillance on you. And the Holy Spirit is more than able through the word of God, by the spirit of God, to reveal the secrets of men's hearts. But see, that's a way that God is convincing I'm real. I don't know about you. I remember the first time you know, sitting in a, a Calvary Chapel ministry when I went to years ago, when I was you know, looking for a fellowship and kind of settled in and just hearing the word of God taught through the book of Colossians. And I remember week after week going there and realizing, okay, we just ended in that verse and the next week we picked up in that verse. And we just kept working our way through this book. And every, I was like, man, how God is speaking. Like God keeps telling me stuff every week. How does this guy know what's going on in my life? And it would be confirming things I was thinking about or giving clarity. But see, that's what the spirit of the Lord does because he knows what's going on inside of our lives. And the word of God does the work of God by the power of the spirit of God. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, and it causes people to be compelled when they realize this. It says they end up worshiping God and reporting God is truly among you. In other words, the only conclusion you can draw is, man, God has got to be in the midst of these people. God must be real. And I remember that's what I, I remember feeling like. I remember being on the other side of the pulpit thinking, God has got to be real. And the word of God has got to be truly alive and inspired by the spirit because how else is this book that was recorded Hundreds, thousands of years ago, speaking to my life right now personally, and God's revealing things and dealing with things in my heart. It's only that God's real, and it wants to make you be compelled to worship. And he says, this is what causes people to be compelled, he says, to worship God. They turn to God, and they say, man, God is truly alive. God's with those people. And again, it's not the amazing spiritual show that makes people realize God's real. It's the power and truth of God's word that opens up someone's heart. That, the Bible says, is what makes someone say, God is real. Because I heard God talk to me today. I know he said something to me, and that's what causes people to be converted and people to recognize the reality of God's existence, especially amongst God's people. He goes on, verse 26, to say, How is it then, brethren, whenever you, notice again, come together, each of you has a psalm, Somebody else has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Paul says, let all things be done for edification. Paul seems to be implying there in verse 26, the idea there, Paul seems to be conveying, how is it that everybody in the church meeting always wants to be in the act? Why is it, Paul says, that there in Corinth, as they were functioning out of order, he says, it's like in Corinth, everybody there wants their turn to be on the stage. Everybody wants a part in the play. Why does everybody want a speaking part, Paul's trying to say? Why is it that when you come together, everybody feels this need to be a part of the show publicly? Why is that? See, this was the problem among the church there in Corinth as they were functioning in their meetings. Everybody wanted the opportunity to speak out, to have the spotlight, if you would, a little bit. The unhealthy spirit, which wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was the human spirit among that congregation was guiding people to desire a platform when they came to the corporate gatherings. 
They wanted an opportunity to be on stage, to do their thing, to to share their thing. He says, why is it when you guys come together? He says, everybody seems to have something that they need to share. Well, I got a psalm. Hey, well, God gave me a teaching this week. Wait a minute, I got an interpretation. Let me share this revelation. And, And he says, why is it that there's this spirit among you? It's not the Holy Spirit Paul's trying to convey. It's the human spirit that everybody has to have a part vocally in the play. Why is that, Paul says? Again, it shouldn't be that way that each one seems to have to have some recognition. He says, look, rather, let all things be done for education. Stop thinking about, he says, trying to draw attention to yourself and instead be thinking about what will benefit people. How can people be helped? How can the Lord stay the focus of our gathering and how can people be helped above all else? So Paul, in light of this, struggle among their congregation, realizing they need some assistance, Under the Holy Spirit's leading, he seeks to give some parameters now, if you would, some biblical parameters for orderliness to seek to give some guidance, and I'm going to use this word, to regulate the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, some people, that sounds foreign to them. It's almost like a misconception. How can you say in the same sentence, letting the Holy Spirit be at work and regulate the ministry of the Spirit of God? Because the Word of God and the Spirit of God are are completely in full cooperation. And the Spirit of God wrote the Word of God. So the Spirit of God is never going to supersede or do something outside the confines and boundaries of Scripture. And it's in the Word of God that we have parameters and boundaries and regulations that say, look, when the Holy Spirit is at work amongst meetings and church gatherings, these are some regulations that should be in place and should be honored and respected to make sure things don't get disorderly, that they don't get fleshly, that things don't get carried away to excess in a way that isn't healthy and best for the people. So he says, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, if God moves someone to exercise that gift, he says, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. So he says, look, if tongues would be exercised, then Paul says, let there only be... He says, let there only be two and at the most, maybe three in an entire meeting. Not everybody doing it at the same time. Not everybody needing to get to do it every week at their set time. This is no, no, no. If it's going to transpire, let there be two at the most three in any given meeting when that would happen. And he says, and not all at the same time in turn. Not at the same time, but separate, independent, in sequence. And he says there must be present an interpreter because if the gift is not exercised with interpretation, uh, then it's just a sporadic outburst. It doesn't help anything. Remember, that's why Paul said back in verse 16 and 17, if you bless with the Spirit, talking about praying in tongues, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed be able to say amen, that they get something out of it and agree with it, at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't understand what you say? He says, you're giving thanks. Well, in other words, you may legitimately be exercising the gift, but he says, the problem is the other person's not benefiting from it. In other words, Paul's trying to convey that this, I believe this is why one of the primary uses of that gift of praying, speaking in tongues is foremost for the personal devotional worship life of the believer. Or it's to be exercised in a manner not necessarily when everyone is, is publicly listening because foremost, typically, it does not usually benefit or edify others. It's meant to edify us as we have ongoing communication with God. So he says, verse 28, look what he says, but if there's no interpreter of the tongues, gift, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So you notice that clear regulation for a meeting? If there is no one with the gift of interpretation, then the gift of praying and speaking in tongues, he says, is to cease in a given meeting. If someone prays in a tongue, the idea is we should pause and say, okay, we need to pray and ask the Lord for an interpretation. And if there is no interpretation, no one with that gift present among the Lord's people, or if there is no biblical interpretation, not somebody who says it's an interpretation, but it doesn't line up with a biblical interpretation, then he says at that point, that person who exercised that gift or anyone else who wants to exercise that gift, if they have it, are not to do it because there's no one to interpret it in the meeting. 
And so therefore it should no longer take place in that public gathering. Again, the primary usage, you see the benefit, is most typically in the more personal worship experience. So he gives a clear regulation there. He says, let him just continue to be quiet in the church that day and speak to himself and God. Keep it quiet and private. Let two or three, verse 29, prophets speak, that is those who speak forth the word of God, and let the others judge. Notice again here the emphasis on order. Again, as he transitions back to prophecy, when spiritual gifts are being exercised, he says, in a given meeting, let two, again, he says, at the most three, speak forth a word for God in any given meeting. The idea is maybe, again, maybe, maybe it's a teaching. Maybe it's someone who's sharing something that they believe the Lord has put on their heart that they're supposed to share with others. Uh, but he says, let two at the most three. And you notice what he says there, verse 29, when that happens, when someone's giving a teaching or if someone shares a word the Lord puts on their heart, he says, let all the others do what? Judge. The idea there is to discern, to evaluate if what is shared is credible. If it's valid and genuinely from the spirit of the Lord himself. Well, how do you judge, evaluate, discern properly if a prophetic word or a teaching, a speaking forth of the word of God, whether in a message or you know a teaching or whether it's in just somebody sharing something the Lord's put on their heart. How do you judge properly if that's indeed of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it should align with the written revelation of scriptures we've been talking about. God is never going to contradict himself. And so if a teaching is of the Lord and of his spirit, or if somebody shares something, hey, I believe the Lord's put this on my heart to just share with you or to share with, with the body, well then in its principle, its truths and what's conveyed, it should always be in alignment with the truths and teachings of the word of God. If it's not, then we don't need to accept it as a credible prophetic word. As well, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. It should meet that criteria. If it's condemnation, guilt trip, and you're miserable and rotten, well, I don't need to accept that's from the Lord because I don't feel edified, exhorted, or comforted by that. Do you see? We, we, we judge according to the criteria that God has given to us. Paul says, writing to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, don't quench the spirit and don't despise or look down upon prophecies, but he says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So again, we, we use judgment, we use wisdom in a proper way. We should be listening and discerning as we hear those things, not just accepting whatever said at face value. Verse 30 says, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first... Keep silent. Again, notice the clear instruction. Again, not chaotic, not sporadic outbursts. If the Lord's putting something, Paul says, on one person's heart and they're speaking, and then at some point, if God wants to put something different on someone else's heart to share, then Paul says, if that happens, the first person is to keep silent so that God may then use the second person to speak, not this chaotic, interruptive, same time kind of thing. Uh, again, I look at this passage here, this verse particularly, and I think that shows me that it requires that we all be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his leading in our lives, even in regards to ceasing from speaking at times. Because Paul says there, he's cautioning against this capacity to potentially quench the spirit by not restraining our human spirit. Paul says, if the Lord wants to speak through someone else, sometimes it takes spiritual sensitivity for us to shut up, <laughs> to stop speaking, to stop doing whatever we're doing vocally because God's saying, look, if you were sensitive to my spirit, you would realize I want you to close off so I can speak what I want to speak or do what I want to do through that person. So again, this is a good reminder here, cautioning us. We don't ever want to monopolize or dominate a meeting time. We don't want to do that. You know, there's an old story of D.L. Moody, just great story of uh, one of his meetings he was holding. And apparently uh, toward the end of the meeting, he asked 
uh, a brother in the gathering to close in prayer. And as this brother went to pray, he just kept praying and praying and praying and praying and eventually just went on, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And after a certain point, Moody went back up to the podium and through the microphone, he leaned in and said, while Brother Jones continues talking to God, let us all sing a closing hymn together. <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of the idea there that Moody was was recognizing like you should have ceased speaking a long time ago. You're, it's okay you're talking to God, but this is a public gathering. This is, not, this is not your private time with the Lord. And so again, we need to be sensitive. Look, here's a good spiritual reminder. It is just as spiritual for me to know when to keep silent as it is to speak. Just as spiritual. We think, wow, it's spiritual when God puts a word on you. That is spiritual. It's just as spiritual sometime for me, for you to know when to keep silent so that others can speak or to stop speaking maybe so that we allow opportunity for someone else to be used by the Lord. I have to always remember in a corporate gathering, it doesn't always need to be me, right? It doesn't always need to be you. God can use everyone and we want to be open to that. He says, verse 31, look, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. That is, there's plenty of opportunity, Paul says, to share what the Lord's put on your heart and it may not necessarily even have to be in, for example, the, uh, you know, the time when everyone is collectively listening. You know, when he says there, you can all prophesy one by one that all can learn and all can be encouraged. What I envision there is Paul saying, look, Speaking forth what the Lord's put on your heart when the Holy Spirit moves on you, that's not only something that you can only do when everybody's listening in the corporate gathering. It may be prior to the gathering when people are fellowshipping or afterwards where in one-on-one -on -one conversations, people are able to exchange. And he says, you can all share things the Lord's putting on your heart as you're having a cup of coffee. Hey, I just, the Lord put this on my heart. I just, or at the end of a meeting, you walk, you know, I really sense that the Lord put something on my heart to share with your brother. And I just, and, and he says, you can all do that. It doesn't always have to be in the setting where everyone's listening and paying attention. The idea is there. And I think that's how a lot of fruitful ministry really does happen in the church. I think a lot of times the gifts of the Holy Spirit happen in very supernaturally natural ways. Prophetic words, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom is not necessarily needing to in the midst of everyone else and having everyone else's attention. The Lord put something on my heart. First of all, as soon as you say the Lord did something, instantly I'm nervous because you're equating that you are that confident that you are being divinely inspired. I would much rather just say, hey, there's something on my heart I, I just wanted to share with you. Look, if it's the Lord, that person's going to know it in their spirit, right? <laughs> I've been on the receiving end where somebody has never had to say to me, the Lord put onto my heart, brother. They just said something to me and it was like the Holy Spirit went boom, right? And it was like, oh, that was a word from the Lord because that pierced me. I know God just spoke to me right now. And so again, I think a lot of this just conversational type, you know, love and fellowship among one another are some of the greatest ways these things come to pass. Well, look at verse 32 and 33. We're going to conclude with this and next week we'll finish the remainder of the chapter together. Not because I'm avoiding verse 34. <laughs> Tonight I am because I need a whole week to address that. <laughs> and my wife's out of town. No, <laughs> that's even a bigger joke. Verse 32. Stay with me here. He says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, notice the Bible makes it very clear. We never lose control when we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That is such a wrong idea. We have the ability to stop speaking at any time. Our spirit is subject to us. What's part of the fruit of the spirit? Paul says in Galatians, self-control. So when the Holy Spirit is moving upon someone's life, we don't lose control of ourselves. You don't go into an altered state of consciousness. It's not an irresistible impulse that just cannot be restrained, cannot be regulated. Well, I just couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit came upon me. I just couldn't help it. I had to say that or I had to do that or I had to 
Look, the mind and the will is engaged. It is not accurate, nor is it biblical to ever say, I could not control myself. The Holy Spirit made me do it. The Holy Spirit gets blamed, unfortunately, for a lot of things that go on that a lot of times are just of the human spirit or hyper-emotionalism or whatever. And, and it's just, it's a shame. The Holy Spirit is never going to force anyone to do anything. He says, the spirit of the prophet subject of the prophet at any given time inconsistently what Paul's saying. That's why Paul's saying, look, you can stop prophesying at any moment. You can restrain from praying at any given moment. You, you can keep yourself from praying in tongues out loud if the spirit is genuinely not directing you to do that. You can be sensitive and the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. The Holy Spirit doesn't come on you and control you and force you to do things. Again, we don't want to blame the Holy Spirit for what sometimes is of the human spirit. He says, verse 33, in conclusion, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Notice, God does not orchestrate or give birth to confusion. To what's chaotic or disruptive or disorderly, anything that's going to cause distraction. God's never going to lead a person to awkwardly do something that's weird. That's not God. God is not the author of confusion. The Holy Spirit's never going to cause activity in a meeting of God's people, listen, that's going to be disruptive. That's going to interrupt the harmony and the fluency of what the Spirit of God is doing because God is a God of order. Paul's going to say in the chapter, we're to do all things decently and in order because God's a God of order. God's a God of beauty, a God of order, a God of you know doing things properly and in the right timing. So again, what does that equate to? Well, that means, for example, if a teaching's being given, you know, I'm sharing a, the word of God or whatever, and God's spirit is at work, God's not going to direct someone to interrupt the teaching. If God is speaking by his spirit through the word of God, God's not going to interrupt himself. He's not schizophrenic. Do you understand? It just, that, that would be out of order, out of God's design. So for somebody, hey, well, I have a word from the Lord or, or I need to pray in tongues or something. God's not going to do something chaotic and confusing that makes everybody feel uncomfortable because God's a God of order and he says the spirit of the Lord works not in a confusing way, but in a way that brings great peace. I mean, just even ponder when the spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember the spirit came upon Jesus in bodily form like a what? Like a dove. What is a dove representative of? Peace, gentleness, beauty. The spirit didn't come upon Jesus like a hummingbird, wild and frenzied, busy. The spirit... But some people think that's the Holy Spirit, right? When it's the Holy Spirit, we go, I've got to get crazy. Get all charged up. The Spirit didn't come upon Jesus like a duck, quack, quack, weird stuff, right? Nor like a hawk, aggressive, demonstrative. And some people, when they, and we see this kind of stuff. When it's the Spirit of the Lord, you know, people almost act like they're angry, like they want to hurt somebody. God's not angry. Why are we getting loud and shouting? God's not deaf. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be open to passion. I'm not minimizing passion. But what I'm saying is that when God works, even by the divine power of his spirit, it's not chaotic, confusing, and uncomfortable. He says, God is the author of peace. And I tell you something. I have been, I hope you have been too, at times when the spirit of the Lord has moved in powerful, powerful ways. The gifts of the Spirit or just a mighty move of God's Spirit in the midst of a meeting. And it's amazing how God can move so powerfully and there's such a sense of peace that just comes over the room and tranquility. And you sense the presence of God, but it is like the most beautiful, harmonious, peaceful experience that's somewhat heavenly. True? Let's stand together. Let's pray.